Breaking the Glass, episode 19. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the post exchange. Well, obviously you're a veteran, but growing up, you know, we didn't have the BX, we had the PX because that was the main exchange or shopping area for, for the U.S. Army bases. And I remember distinctively, like every year, like all kids, you go and do, you know, kind of new clothes shopping at the beginning of the year. Um, and my family never had money for, you know, a Jordans. And, and we definitely barely had money for Nikes. Uh, so most of the time we ended up getting what many of my friends would uh, call, it, it was known as the athletic club shoe or okay. AC for short. Um, and, uh, you know, all my friends were called the, the air chickens. So it was basically. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google for TQ Breaking the Glass, and it should be the first link that comes up and you'll see my podcast. Find me there and leave a rating and review. My guest this week is Russ McCray. Russ is another great friend from the Air Force Academy. He comes from humble beginnings where even though his father was in the military, their family still needed to be on food stamps at time to time growing up. At the same time, Russ came from that background and it inspired him to live a life where he could provide for himself and his family in the future. He ended up going to the Air Force Academy and afterwards serving in the military for a short period and then on to a government civilian job and then to a corporate civilian job to being an owner and a partner in a business to then a full-time entrepreneur. He used each job along the way an opportunity to learn and grow to move on to the next step. He coupled that with lots of education to add to his toolkit, as he'll talk about. That includes an MBA a PhD in finance, some courses in Stanford, as well as a law degree. He first worked for a short period of time in the Air Force and took advantage of an opportunity to get out of the Air Force when the Air Force had overmanned itself with too many officers. Then he used an opportunity called Warriors to Wall Street to get into the finance industry. That led him then to working at a job at KB Homes and then to Bayshore Land Group at the end of the real estate run-up and then into the crash. But he's able to bounce out of that into a government contracting job as a contracting officer, leaning on the experience he had while he was in the military. And this is where all the experience came together. He left the government contracting job to join a company called Spark LLC. When he first joined in that first year, the company made $250,000 in revenue. Two years later, they were pulling in $3 million per year. Three years after that, they were pulling in $43 million per year and were recognized by Inc. Magazine as the 14th fastest growing company. Once they had that successful period, it led to the opportunity to sell their company to Booz Allen Hamilton for $53 million, a great launching pad for Russell's life as an entrepreneur. After he stayed on with the company for a period of time to help Booz Allen with the transition, he is now a full-time entrepreneur running multiple businesses in various industries, including real estate, the technology space, finance, and fast casual restaurant franchises. I know you're going to love the interview. Russ is a funny guy, although very humble. He's a super smart guy, works really hard, and has been a very successful entrepreneur. 
please join my interview with Russell McRae. My guest today is Russ McRae. Russ, welcome to the Breaking the Glass show. Oh, awesome, awesome, man! It's, it's always always a pleasure to catch up and uh, you know get, get a chance to sit down and talk with you, TQ. The way we start off the show is with something I like to call the lightning round background. So, why don't you give a little flavor of what your background is, how life was for you coming up, so that people can get a feel for that? Yeah, yeah. So, I uh, I guess my story starts uh, in Florida. Um, I was born in Orange Park, Florida, in 1979. Uh, the 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 child of a military brat. Uh, or excuse me, child of a military brat. I was a military brat, uh, but but child of a, uh, a military veteran. Uh, so by being so, I and my brother we traveled all around the world while we were growing up. Um, but we were primarily raised in in really three areas: um, primarily in Korea, uh, then Augusta, Georgia, because um, that was home of the Signal Corps. That's where Fort Gordon is, which was my father's MOS. He was a Signal Corps. Uh, Signal Corps enlisted uh, troop, and uh, ultimately Germany. I spent uh, about three years in Germany, but uh, the vast majority of my time spent growing up in Korea. Uh, attended high school in Korea, but came back towards uh, or came back to the U.S. Uh, towards the end of high school uh, to increase for me and my brother's chances of uh, getting accepted into college. So that uh, was something that my uh, my parents were wholly supportive of and uh, wanted to endeavor making that possible. So, uh, but growing up. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my father was enlisted uh, and my mother was a homemaker. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. There wasn't like uh, a second source of income. My father was the breadwinner um, uh, up until the day that he passed. So uh, that being the case and having two very rambunctious boys, we, you know, we, uh, we, we didn't have a whole lot. Um, there were a lot of hand-me-downs growing up. Um, you know, we, we, I, I do know that we were on food stamps for a while, but it was something that I didn't realize until after I had graduated college. Uh, and he and I were, were having a long conversation one evening. But, um, you know, we, we, we didn't have a lot. It didn't have a lot. And um, I think that was a, a pretty, pretty, pretty powerful motivator for myself and I know for my brother uh, when we were growing up uh, in terms of, you know, how we set our goals and, and the, the way we, that we approached and looked at different things in life, uh, you know, everything from how you go about purchasing a home to what type of home, you know, to, you know, should, should, should you use credit for this when, when cash will certainly do so. Uh, but that's, that's kind of the lightning round on, on, on my background. So. Now it sounds like I usually ask, uh, were you, High class, middle class, low class, no class. It sounds like you guys were uh, sort of at the lower end of the spectrum there, huh? Yeah, 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 we were. Um, you know, I, I tell people the story all the time that when I was born, my father was an E6 in the Army. Uh, so imagine 1979, actually E5, uh, and then uh, 1980, put on E6. But, you know, imagine, uh, you know, young soldier, 26 years old with a wife who barely speaks any English that doesn't have a job and, uh, you know, raising raising a boy uh, and then two years later raising the second boy. Uh, so so we didn't didn't have a lot. And uh, so so if I had to place, uh, you know, where, where we kind of fit, it definitely was lower, lower income. Um, but but I think. You know, I think by and large that that defines a lot of who I am and who I ended up becoming today. You know, so did you feel I, it I don't at look the time? It as a bad thing. Did you feel it? Did I you did notice not, it at man. the time? I, I did not. I did not. I think like most parents who were kind of faced with those circumstances, they do their best to hide it. 
you know, because they don't want their child to feel any differently. Um, but I, I can certainly tell you stories. I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the post exchange. Well, obviously you're a veteran, but growing up, you know, we didn't have the BX, we had the PX because that was the main exchange or shopping area for, for the U.S. Army bases. And I remember distinctively, like every year, like all kids, you go and do, you know, kind of new clothes shopping at the beginning of the year. Um, and my family never had money for, you know, a Jordans. And, and we definitely barely had money for Nikes. Uh, so most of the time we ended up getting what many of my friends would uh, call, it, it was known as the athletic club shoe or the AC for short. Um, and, uh, you know, all my friends were called the, the air chickens. So it was basically, (laughs) (laughs) it was was your fake Jordans before Jordans, but they were like a private label brand only meant for military bases for, 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 for athletic shoes. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's called the athletic club shoe. And, uh, I remember everybody would call a, call a, or call my shoes air chickens, but, but it was cool, man, because again, um, Growing up, man, I never felt like we were poor. I, I never felt like that. There right. was always food. We always had a place to stay. Um, I, my father never exposed us to you know, in, any of the food stamps that we had or when he would go out and do that stuff. Um, I remember him working the second job. He worked at a gas station while he was serving full-time or active duty in the Army for about five five, six years there. Um, but it was his way of saying, Hey, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I, I've got to make this happen and I've got two young boys to, to make it happen for, uh, but growing up, no, I no, no idea. We did Disney world once, uh, when we were about five years old, it was on a free military pass. And, um, you know, but, but, but I think that's the, the, the geniusness of, of my father, uh, in that he would always find these really ingenious ways of giving us that normal grow up experience without, wow having to spend the money for it. And I think it, it, it kind of led, uh, led me and my brother to, to grow up being pretty creative and resourceful ourselves. So yeah. were you guys, um, doing any sports or any other activities while you were coming up? Sure. Sure. Uh, so I, I played football, um, you know, flag football through elementary and middle school, uh, moved into tackle football and uh, eventually track and field uh, in high school. So uh, sports were, were, were a pretty huge part of my life. Same with my brother. Um, he uh, played football and then golf. And uh, so when he graduated high school and went to college, he played golf, uh, you know, basically played golf in college. So, um, but yeah, sport, sports were pretty, pretty big for us when we were growing up. So. And then your next move was to go to the Air Force Academy. Why did you choose that as yes. an institution? You know, you know what's what's interesting is, is that um, there, there were several, I guess, not decision points, but you know, gentle nudges that kind of led me to that eventual decision. The the first was is that I was in junior ROTC in high school, and having been a part of that, I knew, you know, and, and having grown up being a military brat, I knew that my father was enlisted, and he always talked about, hey, if you're going to join the military, be an officer. They treat they treat the officers better. Um, you have more options. There's more educational opportunities. So uh, you know, just just if you're going to make that a life goal of yours, do it this other way. Don't do it the same way I did it. And so in, in having that conversation with him, I began looking at scholarships in high school. Um, I began looking at the, the different service academies, um, primarily starting with West Point, you know, around the ninth and 10th grade and had gotten accepted to West Point. I was, I was accepted to West Point on an early admission. 
um, had gotten several uh, ROTC scholarships. And that's kind of when my father was like, hey, you can apply for the Air Force Academy. And I said, well, you know, I really hadn't considered the Air Force. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I, you know, obviously my father was Army and his uncle was Navy. So I didn't have any context or exposure to anyone that was in the Air Force. Uh, but my father, you know, kind of did that gentle nudge and said, hey, well, you should apply. And if you apply, then you got, and you get accepted, you got two options. Right. Um, and at that point, based off what you learn, um, you can make the decision of the better of the two schools, whether that be West Point or the Air Force Academy. Um, so that, that was the nexus behind uh, why I applied to the Air Force Academy. But how I actually ended up getting there, um, I attribute that to several individuals that now have become friends. Uh, but they were all uh, Academy graduates or ca- Academy cadets at the time. Uh, one of those being Smitty. Uh, he was working at the MEO office at the time, and I remember getting a phone call, my first phone call from from Smitty, and you know he kind of laid it on me. He said, "Listen, I'm from the South." He was like, "You want to come to a school uh, that's that's you know top notch, first class? They pay for your education. It, it's just like Georgia Tech with military uniforms. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, you get a car loan." So you know that was kind of the first thing that prompted me of, "Hey, maybe I should go check this out." Not realizing that all service academies got that same thing. I just thought that was unique. To the Air Force Academy. That's a good salesmanship, right um, there. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal. I, I tell him every, I tell him every time I see him, I, I was like, "Man, you totally got me. You know, you did." Uh, he was like, "Man, I had to close the deal. I had to close the deal." So, uh, <laughs> um, and then the second, uh, or maybe third, really gentle nudge uh, was when I actually showed up for not not so much in processing, but I guess I just showed up for orientation, orientation. And by going to do orientation, I ended up getting uh, paired with uh, Rashad Howard, Sam McKenzie, uh, Brendan Epps, Jason Harris, uh, a bunch of guys who had recently been recognized. They were part of the class of 01. So when I went to West Point, you know, I'm like having to make shift a bed out of like four trunks. These guys uh-huh. are still under the fourth class system getting yelled at. And then I come to the academy and it's after recognition. So these guys are like, you know, they're playing outcasts in the room. They're playing cards. We're talking about going out that weekend. It was just a completely different thing, but they completely forgot to mention the whole previous nine months of being a fourth class system. Right. Where you get kind of beat up for the people that don't know the fourth class system is you get yelled at, you have military attention. It's not like being a regular college freshman. You're like a basic training in the military but for nine months yeah and that period it just yes, ended exactly. so you caught them like after they had just basically basically barely got to let their hair down exactly and so you know after witnessing what the air force academy cadets were doing vice what west point and the naval guys were doing i was like oh this is this this is simple air force my father's already told me they got a better nwr program you know um and, and now i'm looking at this you know the cadets over here these guys are loving life i'm like oh this is amazing and then i showed up and and went to basic training and didn't realize after basic training that there was still another nine months of that continued system before you got recognized so uh, i i tell shad and those guys every day and every time i see them that they too also uh trick tricked me into getting here so <laughs> well i'm glad we got <laughs> but, you but man, I'm happily, because it was a good yeah, it was good to know yeah. you yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, same here. I wouldn't change it for anything. But uh, if I'm going to be 100 percent transparent, it, it was gentle nudges and, and, a, and a bit of sleight of hand. So <laughs> that, I heard that, that happened. So when you got to the academy, um, this is the beginning of the formative years, I imagine. Like you, you had some experiences with your at home with your, your you know, the air chickens. 
uh, to nudge you yep. into to what life you're going to lead later on. What was kind of sure. a, are there any other moments from when you were growing up that point or during the academy time that that like were really shaped you into the person that you are today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I want to say first and foremost the 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 guys that I befriended, whether they came before me or even after me. Uh, It's even really hard to articulate how pronounced those friendships have been towards steering not only the professional goals I have, but, you know, some of the personal ones I have as well. So, you know, those friendships are paramount in terms of how, in, in terms of forming, you know, who I ended up becoming today as, as, as an individual. Um, and, and it's very difficult to, to really articulate that because there's just so many instances with those guys. But I, if I had to come back to anything, it was with those guys. So that shared experience, that bond, um, whether it was a great experience or, or not so great yeah. one, um, those were the guys that I could always look over and say, all right, you're here with me. So, so I can, I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Um, so, but, but I had never, and, and not since then met a group of guys, um, who I have developed that type of camaraderie with. So I, I don't want to understate the, the impact when you ask the question of, well, were there other experiences or other things that might've shaped or formed you? One of those big things is befriending those guys. And, and, and now, you know, we're, we're best friends now. So all, all of us. How do you think, um, that prepared you, or maybe you could just talk about you get done with the Air Force Academy. Are there any experiences that stand out? Any one time that you say, or a couple, of, a couple of things that you went through that say, this is something that really helped me, or that really shaped me, or that I really remember that was remarkable about the experience that I had there. Yeah, yeah. It, I think you know, going to the academy was was really unique for me um, in that it had really been the first environment that I had been in that was overwhelmingly Caucasian, you know, you know, overwhelmingly Caucasian. Um, I'm, I'm part white. And even when we would go to family reunions, I wouldn't see that many white people. So coming to an environment, (laughs) (laughs) coming to an environment whereby, you know, 93 to 95% of the student body is white. Uh, it is a really unique experience, especially from someone that has never been in that type of environment. I didn't go to uh, a white high school. I went to a Korean high school, okay. you know, so, uh, you know, a lot. Of, and I know a lot of a lot of my classmates um, and, and the guys that, you know, we formed those really tight bonds with. They grew up and went to predominantly black schools. So I know that it was it was unique in that uh, it might have been a different majority in the school that you might have grown up in, uh, but we were all being placed in the same bucket where you no longer were a part of the majority. You were now going to be part of the minority. What did that difference uh, it, feel like? It, it was different. Uh, not, not even different. I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, this, this is just being you know, 100% transparent. It was pretty intimidating. Um, you know, walking into a classroom where, you know, you're not sure if people have preconceived notions about you. You're not sure if people have got prejudices against you, not, not for any fault of your own, but just because of how they grew up, the environments that they came from. Um, and so it, it's pretty intimidating, you know, having to try and go into that type of environment, uh, form friendships and ultimately try to be successful in graduating. I mean, that, that it's, it's the school's already tough. 
But coming into that space as, as a minority and that realization of that, it's, it's pretty intimidating. Um, I, I think what it does is it forces you to really, uh, you know, dig in deep and find out, okay, who am I? Um, and who, you know, who, who, you know, who, 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 who's the person that I ultimately want to become. Um, but it's, it's, it was tough. It was tough initially, initially, but you know, I, I think like with all of us, especially the, those who were successful graduates, you, you know, you hear constantly flexibility is the key to air power. And it's something that you almost have to adopt yourself because you learn later on in life that if you aren't constantly growing, if you aren't constantly, um, you know, adapting or changing or being flexible, then, then you end up getting stuck in your tracks and dying where you stand. You know, so um, having to come to that realization very, very quickly and doing it and applying that over the next four years to successfully graduate but was was a was a pretty steep learning curve at first. But, um, you know, we, we, we all did it. Did you ever deal with any um, any bias or were there any obstacles you felt like were put up that, that you would like to take down behind you at while you were there? First, also, if you could, what's your ethnic background? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'm 50 percent Korean. Um, I'm like 30% black and 20% white. Okay. And so you, yeah. you went from a place where you're like a mostly Korean high school yeah. to a majority white college. Did you, and you, you weren't sure yeah. of how people were going to treat you. Were you ever mistreated in any way or deal with any kind of any of those, those, those biases that people may have that, that affected you in any way? Um, you know, at the academy, I can recall a few instances, um, and and I know this is a, a story that O2 will tell repeatedly. Um, but I remember there being one particular instance where we had a number of cadets who had gotten busted as part of some ecstasy ring because they were all partying up at you know uh, CU at that point in time, uh, and they several of them had gotten caught. Um, were like on their way to like uh, I don't even know if it's uh, it, it was some federal prison. But one guy, because he knew his time was up, he's getting ready to head to jail. He really didn't care. He'd already gotten kicked out of the Air Force. He was drinking like crazy at the CQ desk and was just sitting there playing music. And I remember distinctively Coop, uh, Gary Cooper, uh, one of my classmates, myself, uh, Kwamini Short, uh, I think Jerome Wana might have been there. We were actually walking. This is on a Friday night. We were actually walking from, I think, Side John to Vandenberg. But we had to pass the CQ desk. And as we passed the CQ desk, you know, the guy didn't acknowledge us, didn't look at us. He was just playing his music, you know. So we didn't say anything. We just, you know, walked past the guy and we were kind of talking and laughing ourselves. And the next thing I know, the guy says the N-word. Oh. Totally just, yeah, totally says it. He was a cadet. He was a cadet, former cadet. And says it. And, of course, we stop in our tracks. We turn around. And the guy is at the CQ desk just laughing about it. This totally happened. Totally wow. happened. Um, so we went back and took care of it. Right. Um, you know, we you had obviously a discussion called with the uh, military police. Yeah, we had a discussion with them. Um, but we called the military police. They came out to make sure no one was going to get hurt while we had the conversation. But, um, yeah, yeah, that, that was one I remember crystal clear because I had never had anyone that said it in such a definitive manner to me. You know, you, you hear people say it, um, but you don't know if they're actually directing it towards you and right. they make it a point to direct it towards you. But that that was one particular instance. In fact, in fact, it was probably the second time I can recall at that point in my life that someone had said it with the with the you know, with the specific uh, intent 
to mean it as a derogatory term Yikes. towards me and, and the group I was with. Um, but yeah, that, that happened, um, I'm saying our sophomore junior year. Wow. Well, so you, I remember, I remember that instance. So. You obviously persevered and graduated and went into the military. Um, what was your, your career in the military like? Cause you, you, you chose not to stay in for super long. Um, so what was your career sure. like and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, after graduation, I commissioned as a second lieutenant, uh, got lucky and got stationed at Eglin Air Force Base. And my original AFSC, I was a manpower officer, um, primarily focused on uh, geolock deployments and different things like that. Um, but in the course of me spending time at my first squadron, um, I was given an opportunity to really kind of cross-train into contracts. Um, it was something that I was passionate about, still am passionate about. So I got into government contracting, went back to tech school, got that knocked out. Uh, and as soon as that happened, meanwhile, I was going, doing kind of my own, you know, side educational things for my master's degree and some post, postgraduate work. Um, but whenever I got finished uh, with really finishing up contracting school, as well as, uh, you know, some postgraduate work, the Air Force had come out and in essence said, hey, we hired way too many officers after September the 11th, and we're looking for volunteers. So, you know, I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, I've got this master's degree. I've got some postgraduate work at Stanford done now. I've got the Air Force Academy thing. I, I want to jump out there. This is like 2004 or 2000. Yeah, at the end of 20, 2003, beginning of 20, 2004. So uh, they said, hey, you know, we're not taking any academy grads. We're only looking for ROTC or OTS, uh, which are obviously officer training corps or officer training school grads, as well as uh, reserve officer training, training corps grads. So uh, since I didn't qualify for any of those, I was like, OK, well, you know, I'll just wait until I guess we're eligible. Well, about three months later, the Air Force came out and said, hey, we didn't get any volunteers. Are there any academy grads who are eligible? So the minute I saw that, that uh, com come out, I immediately put together my application. I went and talked to uh, my director and, you know, told him and said, hey, I want to get out. <laughs> so he was kind of a bit shocked and said, you know, wow, you're a first lieutenant. You know, you just won manpower company grade officer of the year. Or excuse me, contracts company grade officer of the year. Um, why? And I just said, you know, I know that I'm not rated. I know that I'm a non-rated officer. And I know that the reality of a non-rated officer and non-rated means non-rated means non-warfighter, meaning that you don't have a rating, uh, a rating specification or a rating, a rating classification that uh, enables you to either fly um, or, you know, fly an aircraft or, you know, launch missiles or, you know, do different things like that. They, right. they save or reserve the rating classifications really for your war fighters. And then for non-rating classifications are more your support or reserve personnel like, like contracting officers. Right. Um, so in having a conversation with my director, I said, hey, I know the reality for non-rated officers is that I'm never going to make O10. And I'm never going to make 09, and I'm probably never going to make 08, or hell, even 07. And those are all the and general ranks. That reality, yes, those are yep, absolutely. Those are all your flag, uh, your FGO ranks, your, your flag officer ranks. And the the reason being, and the reality of that is not because of my lack of initiative. It's not because of lack of performance. It's not because of my lack of, uh, you know, perseverance or skill or or even want or desire. It's because I didn't have the job that 
you know, the, the military <laughs> was used to seeing fill particular roles and those particular roles at those upper ranks are rated officers. So, you know, I, I kind of, kind of looked at that writing that was sitting on the wall for me and said, okay, if I stay in, I do 20, 25 years, 30 years, the best I'm probably going to get out of this is 06, maybe 07. Um, and that's again, not because of a lack of skill or a lack of desire. It's because that's just the way the system works. So when I explained that to the director, the director looked at me and said, you know what? You're right. I'm not going to even try to sugarcoat this and tell you that, you know, there's a possibility you're going to make, uh, 09 or you're going to be, uh, you know, chairman, joint chiefs of staff. It's never going to happen, you know? Um, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to try taking those very same things that I could give the air force and try it in the business world. And it was that day that um, I dropped my paperwork and volunteered to uh, resign, uh, resign out of active duty. So, and that was, uh, I had been in the Air Force at that point for three years. And I left the Air Force before I hit my fourth year. Wow. So what did you do? What, what you, that's what you want to do generally, contracts. But what did you do specifically mm-hmm. once you got out? Yeah, yeah. So, so I had, had an amazing opportunity because um, I really wanted to work in finance and contracts was pseudo finance, but for the military. But I wanted to really delve into the finance slash real estate space. I, you know, remember this is 20, 2004, 2005. Real estate was hot. Finance was hot. The market was strong. Um, so I really want to enter that space and enter that space and had an opportunity to participate in a program called Warriors to Wall Street. Uh, which in essence was a program for newly separated officers who were junior military officers that wanted to go work in the finance sector. So I joined that program, got introduced to a, 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 you know, a number of different companies that were interested in hiring young junior military officers who had kind of, you know, completed this program um, and got an opportunity to work with KB Home, who is a, you know, Fortune 500 company. They were, t- they are a top uh, 10 builder US wide uh, and got an opportunity to join their acquisition staff in the land department. And that's, that was my first civilian job out of the military. What is, can you explain this Warriors to Wall Street? Um, what is, how did you yeah. get into that program? And uh, or what sure. does it take to get in there? And what is it like when you're doing it? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm not sure if the program exists in, in the same exact form at that time, because during the recession in 2007, 2008, I'm sure you can imagine there was zero interest, actually, and zero jobs uh, <laughs> available coming out of that program. So I think, by and large, the program ended in 2008, 2008, 2009, from the, from the last that I've heard. It might have recently restarted, but based off the original program, the original program was looking for soon-to-be-separating junior military officers who weren't leaving on general discharges or, you know, dishonorable discharges, you had to have an honorable discharge, uh, who had a background or a degree with enough credits in enough accounting and finance subjects to be able to sit down and the desire to sit down and learn about what it would take to be a junior analyst for one of these financial companies. So building spreadsheets, building pro formas, learning how to put together Monte Carlo simulations to, you know, calculate randomized sales figures, um, learning all those different type of analysts, financial analyst type skills. And so once you finish that program, which wasn't long, it was like maybe two months, uh, when you finish that program, they then at that point, would introduce you kind of like uh, the SAC conference, the you know, Service Academy Career Conference. They would then introduce you to program participants who were interested in picking up junior military officers who were finished with the program. So you got to meet different financial companies, different financial departments within big companies like GE. Uh, so that was one of the programs. But what it took to get in to answer your question, 
it didn't take much. All you had to do, I think, was have like a minimum. You either had to have an accounting or finance degree or I think enough credits. I think the number of credits was something like you had to have 20 credits between all accounting and finance classes. Uh, and if you had that and you applied and you know were accepted and were passionate about what you wanted to do in the space, it wasn't, wasn't relatively hard to do. So you did this program, went to KB Homes, um, and you had perfect timing, right, to get in there in 2007, yeah. 2008. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and, and, it's, and it's funny you mentioned that I, I joined them in, 2000, in 2005, okay. which was perfect because, you know, at the time, 2005 was great. And then 2006 hit, and it was like somebody turned off the spigot. Yeah. Um, so what ended up occurring with at least that opportunity was they, the entire Treasure Coast division, which was the, the division that I was a part of for South Florida, uh, they mothballed it. KB Home had a, about a billion-dollar line of credit with uh, the Lehman, uh, Lehman Brothers. And at that point in time, they weren't able to service that debt anymore. So what they did was they mothballed the division, fired everybody five levels above me, and then kept me on um, as kind of a analyst du jour running errands for the executive vice president who they kept on to handle the rest of the the disposition of the the real estate in the portfolio. So I stayed on with him basically selling land off. um, And then we ended up forming a joint venture with Lehman brothers, which is how I ended up becoming uh, working for Lehman brothers eventually um, because we weren't moving the land fast enough. So what they did was they sent down a ton of lawyers and paired me because I was the numbers guy. I was the pro forma guy. Um, paired me with about three different attorneys and we went through the process of unraveling, disposing and unwinding that entire, uh, an entire asset basket. That must've been a heck of an experience. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, it, it, uh, again, was one of those gentle nudges as I call them in life that led me again to, to where I think I am today, because when you're sitting there and you're like, okay, they just fired everybody. There was over 190 people in this division and now there's seven. <laughs> right. Wow. So you're sitting there and, and it was the first time I had ever even seen anything like this, where in, 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 in mass people were laid off and they did a bunch of consolidations on top, you know, different types of jobs and basically said, okay, hey, Russ, we're keeping you on because you're the numbers guy and you don't have a wife and you don't have a kid and we know you can travel and you can work really late hours. And that's pretty much what happened. Right. So. Um, I, I did what, uh, what, what I know my father would have told me at that point in time, which was like, Hey, learn as much as you can, as quickly as you can. Um, if there's any opportunities to learn more or take on more, do it. And so that's what I did. I volunteered for everything. What's uh, a, what are a couple of good things you learned? Yeah. So, so, so one of the, one of the great things that I learned there was that, um, that number one, uh, you're not irreplaceable. No matter how important you think you are, no matter how many degrees you think you have, no matter how much of an expert <laughs> you might be in whatever endeavor it is that you, you know, they're contemplating letting you go, you're not irreplaceable. No one is. And it's one of the biggest things that I think is humbling for me. It was something I think I, I was okay with accepting. Um, but it, it's something that I watched a lot of people who got laid off couldn't come to terms with. Yeah. You know, I, I remember distinctively uh, one gentleman, he was a West Point grad and had never been laid off, obviously. Um, this was his first job out of, after leaving active duty. And the day he got let go, I mean, he literally broke down crying. Mm. You know, and this is a guy who was four years older than me, West Point grad. 
Right. But it was something that was just so shocking to his conscious of, okay, I have a home, I have a mortgage, I've got a family, and I've got no job. And we're now in what is probably going to be the worst recession in real estate for at least a few years. And I'm a construction manager. Yeah. And so, you know, him not being able to come to terms with the fact that he was really replaceable, um, that was the decision that was made by the business, was something that I learned very quick is that, one, you're always replaceable. No matter how how important you think you are to a process or to a deal, it's not true. So you, what you have to do is you constantly have to prove your value. You got to be adding value always. So that's probably rule two: is there's you know there's always going to become there's always going to be times where you know it doesn't seem like a whole lot's going on. Um, so what you need to do is find ways to add value. Um, and especially when there's times where the lot's going on, that's where those, those, you know, that type of mindset is really important. So if there were two big takeaways from that experience, one, um, no one's irreplaceable and two, always add value. I would have thought. The guys who ended up staying. Go uh, ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, the, the, the guys who ended up staying around were the guys who they said, okay, you know what? You guys are part of the critical team here. Like, you know, the, the CPM method or critical path method. That's what they did. They said, you're the belly button for this. You're the belly button for this. You're the belly button for this. And when you look at all those positions and the people who were sitting in those positions, they were all value add type people in value add type positions. So that's probably the biggest second takeaway. I would have thought from it's, that experience. it's so interesting um, when I have these conversations, I would have thought it was some hard skill, like, you know, some dynamic modeling restructuring yeah. method or something that you learn but these these smaller yeah. softer points are the big things that were takeaways is always always impressive to me yeah because you know i could sit here and and, and regale you probably talk your ear off about uh, unwinding and divesting of assets but you know i'm gonna be honest you know how many times i've used that that specific skill set or knowledge set since that time yeah. zero okay you know now it's great that i have it um, but if there's something that I think was more impactful, it's the first two points that I listed. You're not irreplaceable, always add value. So you went from there to what was the next step? Because I know I see the next is the Bayshore Land Group. Is that where you landed after sure. the whole KB thing ended? Yeah, 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 yeah. So so after the KB uh, Lehman Brother joint venture, uh, well, it actually hadn't even resolved itself. Um, I was actually sent down to sell a deal, basically to do a pitch. Um, to do an investment pitch to a, a group of principals, one of them being a South Star as well as Black, uh, you know, um, excuse me, not Black, <laughs> Black Acre. I was going to say my company, but uh, Bay uh, Short. Um, so those those two companies were going to be present at this pitch that I did, where I sat down, kind of walked through this entire presentation of this land deal that we were moving and needed to be repositioned. Um, we gave a bunch of recap options in terms of recapitalizing the deals, you know, to make it financially, you know, incentivizing for uh, for these principals out of Miami. And when the spiel got done, uh, Jay Furtick, who was one of the principals there at Bayshore, he looked at me and said, "Okay, man, the only question I've got really is, will you come with the deal?" Mm. And I kind of looked and I was like. Well, I come with a deal. He was like, yeah, he was like, because I could totally buy this deal. He says, but I've got, I would have to hire someone to manage you. And you seem to know everything about the entitlements, you know, where the development's at, you know, what's going on with the vendors and the trades. He was like, and you probably have got a strategy, whether on your own or one that's been you know, given to you in terms of how best to position this property so we can maximize profit. I said, yeah, sure. So 
um, you know, made me an offer and I moved to Miami for the it next year. It was an offer years. you couldn't refuse, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. R- wrote it down. Um, the first time I ever got, I, I ever hit six figures in a salary. That was my first time. So at Bayshore, you went there because you were highly sought after. And one of the things I, um, that I know about you is you seem to have a meticulous ability to retain detail on multiple subjects. Is that something that you think is a <laughs> gift? Seriously. I, I mean, I know you laugh like, you know, it's funny, like people who it's like asking Michael Jordan, how do you dunk a basketball? Man? I see the way you spin around. And I, was like, I don't know. I just jump up and dunk it, <laughs> yeah. you know. And of course, yeah. part of it's hard yeah. work. But how, is that a skill you developed or is it um, just something that you've that you've always had the ability to do? So, you know, to be honest, um, it's, it's something that I think I had to develop because the, the, the most impressive speakers, presenters, conversationalists that I have always come across are those who always seem to have a mastery of the facts, right? You know, fact, facts still matter in this day and age, people. Facts still matter. They do still and matter. They still matter. And being able to recall that information and it be checkable. You know, it, it, you know, someone can follow up and it, it can be verified. That's that that's important. And in fact, it's so important that the next time you have a conversation with that individual, you're least likely to go verify it because you begin to trust that individual. Right. And that becomes the undercurrent and the pinnings of uh, a successful partnership, relationship, you know, you know, in, in any of those shifts. So. Uh, I, I think it's something that I recognized early on and people that I really looked up to and said, OK, I would like to be in that position one day. And so it, it, it for me, it was something that I wanted to continue to develop and I still work on to this day. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's pr- pr- probably it. So you you worked at Bayshore. Um, sure. Let's let's talk a bit about that and then your time at DCMA. And I want to I want to hear it from a strategic point of view, because. Ultimately, you end up you, you're in a place now where you're an entrepreneur. But what were you trying to do at mm-hmm. Bayshore and at DCMA, um, and with the education you're getting along the way? What were you trying to do in terms of building yourself and shaping into who you wanted to be? Yeah, yeah. So, so in terms of the educational piece, uh, I my parents were huge, huge proponents in education. Uh, it, it, it's the one thing that my father used to tell me, I don't care what, how much money you have. I don't care how many cars you have. I don't care how many businesses you're the CEO of your degrees are the one thing that the IRS can't take from you. The federal government can't take from you because you earned it and it's yours. No one can take that away from you. So growing up early on, that was something that I always just saw, wow, you know, money can be taken, prestige can be taken, you know, uh, titles can be taken, but your education, your degrees and what you do with them and your accomplishments can't be. Uh, And so growing up and becoming an adult, uh, education is always important and continue to be important even after, you know, the academy. Uh, I, I went to the, you know, University of Arkansas. Uh, for my MBA, I went to Stanford University for my SCPM uh, postgraduate work. Uh, left What's there SCPM? That's the Stanford Certified Program Manager okay. with a uh, focus in finance. Got it. Um, left there, uh, did a uh, PhD, uh, well, I'm a PhDC in finance at North Central University, and then subsequently left there, uh, or, or while I was still doing my PhD. Uh, joined or some joint, uh, applied for law school, got accepted, and uh, graduated from law school. 
So, uh, but, but, but education was always one of those things that I said, you know, it's, I look at it as tools, right? Your, right. your academy degree is, is a wrench. Your master's degree is a hammer. You, you know, any type of, you know, terminal degree or doctorate degree after that is really a saw, you know, and, and these are all tools that you can carry in your toolkit. And that you can apply to certain scenarios and situations throughout life. Um, whether were you it's getting these while you were working? Personal. Yes, absolutely. So I would work uh, full time at my jobs and I would go to school at night. Um, I started going, I, I graduated from the academy in 02. Uh, I began classes that fall, uh, October to 02, and went from from that class from 02 and didn't stop going to college part-time until 2013 when I graduated from law school. Wow. So I have been in college. I've been in college for 11 years, sans graduating from the air force Academy and I work full time. Yikes. So no excuses there. No, no, no. But, but, but I I think for for me, it was, it's all about priorities. You know, um, I, I think if you make education a priority, um, it will be, you know, it's like going to the gym. If you make, the gym a priority, it will be, um, you know, the, the thing is, is being consistent, you know, so making it a priority is one thing, but being consistent and prioritizing it is really what makes you successful. Now at Bayshore, um, what were you doing there and, and what did you take away from that? Sure. 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 So I started off as the, uh, director of project management, really focusing on finance then that kind of evolved into the director of capital sourcing with eventually me becoming a vice president of real estate investment banking. And in essence, what, what we did was, is we, during that time, 2007, 2008, we didn't really deal with the home builder type issues because those were all residential type issues. We focused, focused more on the CNBS's side of the business. So the commercial mortgage backed security side, so we were raising debt, doing capital sourcing for new projects, uh, identifying investors, recapitalizing different uh, deals that had already been financed. And so that, that's primarily what we did on that side was focusing on the real estate investment banking side for the commercial market. What? So was there, I mean, this, that was a risky time to be in that business, was it not? Yeah, 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 it, it absolutely was. Uh, Everybody thought I was crazy. Um, you know, people were like, you know, you know, this is all going to end. And I said, yeah, it, it is. But you know what? It's paying me for the time being. I'm learning more than I probably ever will in this as it relates to this particular space. Uh, and I'm doing it because I don't have a wife. I don't have a kid. Right. And I know I see the writing on the wall. So I'm trying to learn as much as possible because how I don't know when the next time this opportunity is going to come up, if it even comes up for me again in the future. So I wanted to take advantage of it right then. So we crossed paths at the end of Bayshore, I believe. You had a yeah. a moonlighting period with Davida before you went on to DCMA. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. And and we were in training together for a little while. And, and I, you were talking about, I think at the time, you were talking about going to get your law degree and yep. um, and then doing some work in, you know, uh, in, in defense contracting and seeing what happens from sure. there. So. What, what, so you, you spent a little time at DeVita, but mainly it was Bayshore to, to DCMA, which is another defense contractor. Why did you go there? Yep. So, so after, so, so in, in piggybacking on what you mentioned, um, after Bayshore, Bayshore obviously collapsed. Uh, unfortunately, during 08, 2009, financial markets had all but dried up. Access to credit and capital was non existent. And if you're a private equity group, you live and buy, you live and die by your credit facility. So 
So if there is no credit facility, you can't transact deals. You can't transact deals. You don't earn fees. You don't earn fees. You can't pay your employees. So that's what happened with Bayshore. Uh, and I knew that was coming. So in 09, I left Bayshore, um, had moved back up to Eglin Air Force Base, which is where I was stationed at in uh, the Panhandle of Florida, was looking for different opportunities, spoke with a classmate of mine from the academy, Antoine McNeil. He invited me to come and check out Atlanta. And so I said, well, what are, what are we up here looking at? And he was like, well, you know, you, you're, you can, you, we, can actually get, excuse me, we can get you back in the reserves if you're really, really interested in that until you figure out what you want to do next. But there's some real estate opportunities here that you might want to look at. So I moved up to Atlanta looking at those and kind of pursuing some of those um, and then got back into the reserves assigned to Dobbins Air Force Base. So I transitioned back up here to Atlanta, kind of just trying to figure out what was going on at that point in time. Again, this is 2009, 2010. Uh, and had heard from a former roommate of mine, Justin Mason, uh, down in Miami. He was also in the Air Force with us for a while. He had moved to California at this point in time, met a wonderful lady. Uh, I believe her name was Lynn. And she was, you know, like a group facility administrator at DeVita. And said, hey, if you're really interested in learning something new and doing something different, then you should check this out. And so she kind of hooked it up and I went down there, interviewed, got accepted. And, you know, thus began a one year kind of uh, experiment in the medical space. Uh, learned a ton, uh, but I still had my goal of eventually going to law school, as you mentioned. So I had been applying for law schools while I was waiting, you know, well, while I was down there and making learning. Uh, and then when I got my notification that I had been accepted to law school, uh, a local program here in Atlanta, I went ahead and said, okay, uh, I'm going to go and resign now because I'm going to go transfer and begin law school this fall. And that's what I did. I uh, resigned from DeVita, went back up to Atlanta, had an opportunity to join DCMA full-time, but I had initially just came back up here to go to law school. But it just coincided with beginning law school and then working for the government. So that's okay. how I got back up here. That worked out. And similarly, yeah. it, it was a time when you were working and, and you did some work with DCMA as a contract officer once again, yep. which similar to your Air Force work, yep. sounds like. Um, but once mm-hmm. you wrapped that up, how did you flow from DCMA into your opportunities with Spark? That That's like the, yeah. the sort of business that put rocket fuel into your entrepreneurial career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, as I was sitting here as a contracts officer, you know, I go down. And, and the difference between being a contracts officer, active duty, it, it was that we were primarily working with other soldiers. Sure, there were a few federal civilians that we would work with, but you didn't have a ton of contact with defense contractors. Well, that was not the case at all with that contracting opportunity experience, experience at DCMA. We're a civilian agency, or they were a civilian agency. Uh, even though I wore a military uniform, no one else did. It was, you know, only your officers wore military reserve, excuse me, military uniforms. So I had a ton of exposure to defense contractors uh, and not only saw how their business model worked, but saw how they competed in one work. And then I saw the benefits of winning that work. And when that all kind of got put in front of me, I said, you know what? The first opportunity I get to start my own company, because um, I realized at that point in time, you got to own you know, you, you, you know, you're never going to get rich working for anyone else and you're never going to get rich saving, but you got to own stuff. And one of those one of those things is a business, hopefully. So um, I got an opportunity to join a small, very, very small defense contracting firm. There was maybe seven to nine folks at the time. And I joined it. It was in Charleston, South Carolina. 
really, really quirky startup, but uh, it, it grew tremendously over the next five years. Uh, but that, that's really what kind of fueled that was watching and experiencing that on the DCMA side and having dealing with the defense contractors and saying, you know what, I think I want some of this for myself. So what was uh, so the defense contract you joined was Spark. Um, mm-hmm. what was it like with, you said there were seven people there when you joined, what was it like joining a startup sure. at that point in its life cycle? It was a uh, white plastic Walmart tables and really uncomfortable chairs. <laughs> and, <laughs> and no one, no one knew whether or not we were going to get paid. Uh, there were a ton of cash flow issues. Mm. Uh, but you know, what was great about that experience, uh, was that we were all young guys and girls. We were all young guys and girls. The CEO of the company and the original owner, Eric Bowman, he was the same age as me. He was a Naval Academy guy, O2. So, you know, I come on and he's like, oh, this is Yusuf O2. And then we had a West Point guy. And so everyone was pretty young. And in going through that, that struggle together, um, it, it, it kind of recreated that experience that I, I, I saw at the Academy. We formed bonds over that. Um, you know, even though it's a little bit different than the military business bonds are kind of, you know, they're, they're just as strong. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, a startup in the, in, in the very sense of saying the word startup. And, and that's what it was like. We, we didn't know where we were going to get paid. We didn't know if we were going to win any work. So we just, uh, we, we were kind of like the proverbial duck story that you hear, right? You see the duck on the surface of the water. It's all calm and cool and gracefully, you know, floating by and then underneath it's kicking like a madman. And, and, and that's what we were doing. What was uh, the type of work you were trying to win? So you had seen contracts won while you were at DCMA, but what type of work were you guys gunning for at Spark? At the beginning, any. Okay. At the beginning, any contracts. Uh, we, we, were, we were purely in survival mode. And, and so, wait, so what does that mean, though? Like what, what type of you, – were you trying to paint – you weren't trying to paint houses or, you know – no, 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 no. Yes, yeah, it was it was contracts. I mean, it was contracts specifically for the DOD client. So any of your Department of Defense clients or agencies that focused on software solutions. Okay. We were a software development company, and we delivered software solutions for the Department of, of Defense. So uh, a particular example is, you know, if the Department of Navy wants to control drone, drone subs, underwater drones. Uh, we were one of the contracts we had is that we wrote the the base code for allowing users to control that using iPads. Got it. You know, um, so it was contracts of that nature. Got it. Got it. And was it what made you take the risk? Were you still young and unmarried, or uh, was it that, or was it what was it that drew you to the opportunity? It, it was, uh, I, I, I looked at the opportunity and I said, you know, I'm, I'm 30. I was 30 at this time. And I said, you know, I think the worst of the recession is over. So I think for the next few years, as the economy is recovering, all ships are going to rise. You know, rising tide lifts all ships. Uh, for me, I said, you know, if this works, if this works, it was a risk and a gamble for me. I said, if this works, it could really, really work. Or, Russ, you can take the tried and true method and become an outstanding employee for another business. So what do you want to do? You're 30 years old. You got no wife. You got no kid. Yeah, I had a girlfriend. Um, but it was, you know, do you want to go and become an employee during this recovering economy? Or do you want to be an entrepreneur? 
And I decided, you know what, maybe, maybe I'll take this shot. Cause if it doesn't work, remember, I still have a saw, I still have a hammer and I still got a wrench right. and a toolkit. I can always go and take those tools to some prospective employee and find a job. How did you, how did that saw wrench and hammer come into play while you were at Spark? You had to use it all. We, we, we ended up, everybody was firing on all cylinders because we didn't have formal departments like an HR department. We were figuring that stuff out as we were going along. Uh, when I first joined the company, I, I tell people all the time, I said, you know, we didn't even have corporate insurance. We had no insurance. We had health insurance, but we didn't have business insurance. We didn't have litigation insurance. We didn't have EPLI insurance, employee liability. So those are all different things that, you know, when I first got there and I said, Eric, we're completely exposed, you know, and, you know, if this was my business, I would get insurance. It's pretty damn cheap. Premiums are pretty low and it could come back and seriously help us, you know, you know, it basically smooth out some of these cash flow issues from an unsuspecting lawsuit. And so that was one of those things that I had saw and witnessed and working for Bayshore and working at other businesses that I was able to bring to the table like day one, you know, hey, what, what, what's our insurance carrier? Okay. Outside of insurance carrier, what's the accounting system we're using it? And is it compliant with the FAR? Right. Is it auditable by the, is it by DCAA? Those are things that I had taken from the contracts world. And I knew DCA audits happened with government contracts. Uh, one of the other value adds was, Hey, who's, who, what's, what's our court, what's our banking relationship? Like what's our commercial banking relationship? And that was one of the things they were like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, who do we have a line of credit with or a factoring product with? So if, if we have issues getting paid on time, we can submit those invoices, accelerate those cash positions forward, pay a small fee, but take care of our, our expenses today. Right. Um, so it was all those little things that I'd learned, not only in finance, but in contracts, but in, and especially with the government side. Um, and then just business principles uh, in general that I was able to apply. Um, and, and a lot of that, that saw that wrench, that hammer uh, was, was applicable, especially in the early days. So. Got it. And so what turned it for you? Like what took it from just bite, scratch and claw to make it to every, you know, every payday to, to a point sure. where you guys are sustainable? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with any business, and this goes without saying for any business, every business reaches a point of critical mass. Okay. At the point, and it depends because critical masses can mean different things, but at the point that a business hits critical mass in terms of cash flow or critical mass in terms of dollars and contracts, that's the point that you know you've got escape velocity, right? It's more than, hey, I'm riding down the driveway and I think I can get off the ground. It's no, I've got enough thrust and and I can can get up out of here. Um, That probably happened to us once we started hitting about three to four million dollars in revenue. Because at that point in time, we then began being able to bill two, three hundred thousand dollars a month in in, in in government contracts invoices, and you know our our overhead, our expenses might have been pretty close to that. But it was I just remember that distinctly being the first point that we were breaking even, based off what we based off what our salary requirement was for, right. for our folks. So. Um, so, but that was probably around the point was when we hit about three to four million dollars in revenue, and we began developing escape velocity after that. How long did that take you from the time you got there in 2011? How long did it take you to get there? Sure, sure. So, so I, yeah, I got there beginning of 2011, and we that ended up taking about two years of just grinding. Wow. Yeah, it was it was, it was a solid two years. But when the money track hits you, because no one knows when the money truck is going to hit you. 
Um, sometimes it hits you and keeps going. Sometimes it backs up and sometimes it hits you, it backs up and then it parks on your behind. Um, because the acceleration between three to four million dollars of revenue, and then when I had sold, well, when we sold the business for uh, for fifty three million, uh, we were doing forty two million dollars in revenue. Whoa! You know, forty two to forty three million in revenue. Yeah. And so, you know, when you ask the story, well, when you joined it as a startup, it took two years to develop enough critical mass. Um, from that point, you know, so two years into it, how much longer did it take the sales? We sold the business three years after that. Wow. Wow. Less than three years after that. Wow. Yeah. So imagine going from a $250,000 contract, that being your total revenues for your first year, to doing three to four million by about year two and a half to doing over 42 million two and a half years later. Yikes. And, 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 and we just happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right team. Yeah. Cause you executed it. And I wonder, you say the team was the right team. Yep. What do you think for you mm-hmm. personally? What skills did it take? to be able to help that team execute aside from what you brought in terms of business knowledge um, that you got inside in the door, what other skills were necessary? Would a person have to have to help a company grow from 250 to 3 million to 43 million in, in revenue every year to selling it for $53 million? Yeah. So, so I think in terms of my contribution, because I was the finance and the legal guy, uh, my biggest value add was always trying to articulate risk. Articulating risk is a really difficult thing, uh, whether it be legal or finance, because so much is so, so much is subjective. So being able to accurately articulate risk to the business owners, and then when I became one of the business owners, the decision makers, uh, was probably one of the biggest things that I could do and I continue to do until we sold the company. Um, because it was something that very few people had the ability to ascertain and say, oh, okay, so what does if that we mean? do this, Okay, sure. So it, it, a perfect example would be, okay, Russ, we want to, we're tired of renting. We want to buy a building. Okay. I said, okay, great. How much, where, and, and, and I'm sure you want to ask me how much you can afford. So it was in those types of situations where I'd say, you know what, I don't think at this particular time, the risk is appropriate for us to be trying to take on this work when we got to recompete on a new government contract coming up in three months that hasn't, right. and hasn't been announced. You know, so it was connecting those dots and then painting the why behind the risk being more than what most people think, you know, because for a lot of those people, it would be a simple massing where we make this much in revenue, we can afford this much in a mortgage. Well, I was like, well, it's a bit more steps than that, because if we lose this contract here, we won't be making that revenue and we haven't won it yet. You know, so being able to articulate that risk to the team and then eventually to the decision makers. Uh, it, it was it was probably the biggest contribution that I had, both from a legal standpoint and finance. How were you able to do it in a way that didn't make you seem like a Debbie Downer? Yeah, yeah. So, so that was that, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd say that was something I struggled with at the beginning uh, because being a part of a tech company and that tech space, you know, we had a chief evangelist. I'd never even heard of a chief evangelist. Right. I, I remember the first time I met John Smith. I said, you know, what, what is this? And he was like, you know what, Russ, you just got bad aura. You know, he's like, you military types. You're just negative and you're too gruff and da 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 da. So I remember hearing this from him. So I tried going about doing it in a manner that was acceptable to the most sensitive of the group. And I know that seems like you're bending back bunch, but when you're trying to win people's trust in the beginning, you have to do that. 
You have to speak to the lowest denominator, whether it's intelligence, whether it's social IQ. I don't care what it is. You've got to be able to talk to the lowest denominator because then you can get everyone's buy-in. Right. Okay. You can get, or, or at least make the attempt to get everyone's buy-in. And I think by doing that, it really changed the optics on the thing, the job that I was trying to accomplish. And they put it into more of a bucket of, okay, Russell's not really a Debbie Downer. Russell is just a, a serious considerer. If that, if that, no, that's, if that's good. And I wonder, that, so if you could, if there was one thing that, that took you from being a Debbie Downer to a serious considerer in terms of the perception of you, what's one thing you had to do yeah. to, t- to carry the message to that lowest common denominator? So being able to speak at a level that was acceptable, and I'm going to be honest, being acceptable for him to kind of understand what we were trying to get across, uh, paid in spades. It paid in spades because ultimately everyone else was already on board. It was just making sure that we got everyone at the table to agree. And, and to do that, you've got to be able to speak to the lowest denominator, whether that's insecurities in terms of their financial knowledge, insecurities in terms of the role that they think they're playing, that you're playing, and, and you know, so so speaking to those insecurities and making sure that they have no reason to feel insecure, you, it, it it pays itself in space. You uh, sound like you you clearly clearly did a good job doing that because they stuck with you. The company grew hugely, yeah. and then you you sold it to to Booz Allen. Um, two two questions around the sales piece. First question is. How did you move from just being a guy on board to being an owner? Like, how did you sort of negotiate your sure. way into that? And then what was it like to actually mm-hmm. sell the company? Yeah. So when in the very early days of the company, uh, and, and this goes for any startup, this goes for any startup. I don't care if you're in the tech space. I don't care if you're in real estate. It doesn't matter. Your best currency as a startup is not capital. It's equity. Your, your, your best startup, excuse me, your best currency as a startup is not capital, it's equity. Okay. Uh, and, and think about it, right? If I'm a small startup, there's four guys, we're sitting around a white table, we're hustling, we're trying to get stuff done, and we've only got $10,000 to work with, bringing on a junior developer or UI UX girl to come in and help us figure out our user interface type stuff, I would love to be able to afford and pay for that. The problem is, is the reality at that point in time is we can't, but we need it. So either you get creative and you figure out a way to get them on board or you go without. Well, option one is get creative. And the best way to get creative in that situation as a startup is recognizing that your capital should really only be used for those things that are absolutely necessary. Hmm. But you still have an amazing amount of currency that people buy into, and that's the form of equity. And I said, you know, Eric, I, I want to help you guys. And, and, and I'm here to help you guys, but there's some things that happened before I showed up that I can't fix. I can't fix today. I'm not going to be able to fix next week. It's, it's going to be probably a month or two. So I'm going to continue to be adding value. Um, and I can tell you how to fix this. I said, but you're going to have to listen to me. And the guy said, okay, well, we tried it my way. Let's see if you got, you can do any better. And we did. So it was at that point in time. You know, he and I were having drinks one night and um, he said, man, you know, your value add to this business has been tremendous. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I, I recognize that you recognize that. So basically, what do you want? And I said, well, Eric, you know, what I what I want and what I believe I deserve for helping you guys kind of get here. You guys can't afford. I know because I look at the numbers. I look at the numbers every day. <laughs> right? right. I'm looking at the numbers before we had this drink. So I know you can't pay me what I'm worth. You know, I know you can't. 
Um, and if you can't, then there's got to be something else commensurate to make up for that. And that was the beginning of the conversation of how I ended up becoming uh, one of the owners for Spark. Got was, it. Hey, how do I keep you invested and aligned with my vision of where I want to see this company be if I can't afford to keep you here? Right. And that's where that conversation was birthed out of. How did it feel to sell it? And you sold the company to Booz Allen Hamilton for $53 million, which yeah. is an eye-popping number. I mean, you know, $53 million yeah. Oreo cookies yeah. is a lot. You know, $53 million, is just, <laughs> that's like beyond Monopoly money, you know? Um, yeah. What yeah. did that feel like? Uh, so, so I tell people all the time, you know, the hardest thing that I ever had to do professionally, I mean, in terms of hours put in, redrafts on top of redrafts for legal documents, data calls, unending, unceasing data calls, uh, clarification calls, uh, professionally selling a company and leading a merger and acquisition was the hardest thing I had ever done professionally, um, because it literally consumes your life from the LOI to the sale. It consumes your every moment, waking, sleep, it doesn't matter. Um, but now once the sale happened and the money hit the bank account, I, it totally was worth it. Wow. You slept <laughs> so, like a baby then. It totally, yeah, yeah, so it slept like a baby then. I mean, I, I, I had never seen that much money hit uh, my bank account. I, I, I'd never seen it. And you go like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. is this yeah. Eric? Let you me know, log out, log back in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it's funny because I knew how much I was getting. Right. I was completely prepared for the wire. And then when it happened, it was one of those things where it's like, holy fish. Like, wow, this is... This actually happens. Those stories you read on CNN and money.com and Forbes.com of people getting paid. And, you know, because when you see people say, yeah, you got paid out $100 million. People got paid out $75 million. People got a $6 million check. That stuff happens. Yeah. That, that stuff happens because when they told me I was getting my check, it actually showed up. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. So to imagine someone sitting there one day and they wake up, know a deal's happening and they get a check for a hundred million. I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine. Right. But um, on that day that I got my check, uh, it cemented for me a few things. Uh, one of which was this actually happens. Uh, it, it's not just superfluous stories that you have sitting out on the internet. No, no, there's people out here actually doing deals and then waking up with these types of checks in their bank account. Awesome. Well, one of the big things that I learned out of that experience was, hey, one, this is real, and two, I want more of this. Yeah. So that's kind of led me to to this stage in my life now. So I know it's an amazing feeling whenever you actually sold it. You know that this type of stuff really happens. Um, yeah. Once once that all went down, now it seems like you just transitioned to the life of like, it's, you almost seem like a, the Atlanta's version of 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 uh, Russell uh, Branson. Was that is that his right? Is that his name? No, Richard Richard Branson. <laughs> Richard 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 Branson. Branson. But you're the Russell version of Richard Branson in Atlanta. Just multiple <laughs> businesses, you know, multiple entrepreneurial endeavors, um, and just kind of putting that hustle yeah. on. So is that is that what you transitioned to? Why don't you talk about a little bit about what that is and and what that life is like for you? Yeah, yeah. So you know. Having spent the first part of my professional career working for the Air Force and then rolling out of that into the civilian world um, and then get, transitioning from being a civilian employee to being a, an owner of a civilian business and now, you know, moving out of that partnership and just doing my own thing, um, you know, I just saw what I'm doing now is the next kind of natural evolution of 
truly becoming an entrepreneur where, you know, you control the deal that you want to pursue. You, you, you know, you pursue the assets that you're really interested in and you do the deals that you're passionate about. And so, you know, what I'm doing now, I see just as being a natural part of that evolution that happens with every entrepreneur. Some do it much earlier, some skip steps. Uh, but for me, it was, it was great from a programming standpoint, at least for me growing and learning and, and having an opportunity to work with a lot of wonderful folks. Going from a corporate environment, military, to a corporate environment, civilian, to a more semi-entrepreneur type of uh, environment where I was a partner, and then finally into a true entrepreneurial environment, which is what I'm in now, where you know you, you eat what you kill. And so if you're not out there killing, you're not eating. What does it take, you think, to like what are some key characteristics it took for you to get to the point where you're running your own thing and and you can feel confident eating what you could? Because you're eating pretty good uh, from from what I see in terms of you made a lot of good business decisions and, and they're they're turning out very well. What does it take, you think, to get from where you started to do what you're doing successfully? Yeah, if, if there were two uh, two main things that I would say, uh, they would be to stay humble. Um, you know, the, the minute you kind of start gassing your own self up, or the minute you feel like that you've you know, you know it all, um, you're 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 dead on arrival. Whether it's coming into a, a partnership or another business a transaction, and if you you know you think you know everything, which is impossible for any type of deal on any type of subject. Um, you, you just you end up throwing people off. Um, so people aren't as willing to not only work with you, negotiate, or even teach you if there's an opportunity to do that. So there's rule number one about making the transition and, and trying to be somewhat successful at it. It's staying humble. Um, you know, open yourself up to opportunities to learn, grow, um, because those are two things that you can always do and everyone can always do. I don't care where they are at in their, their life, um, you know, in terms of age and or professional or personal uh, growth and development. Uh, the, the, the second thing would be staying hungry. Um, you've got to stay hungry, uh, you know, becoming, and, and I tell this all the time to a lot of folks who are making the transition out of the Air Force whenever they call and say, hey, should I do this? Um, I often ask, you know, you know, what, what's, what is it about the Air Force that, that you like? I mean, what, why is the Air Force an option if you're on to honestly contemplating this? And the, the, the responses you hear are always the same. It's what I know. It's what I'm familiar with. Uh, I know my check is always going to be there the 1st and the 15th. Right. Um, you know, it's low risk. That's and security. So when, when I hear those things, yeah, it's, it's that security. And, and I tell people all the time, I said, you know, when you get comfortable, you get complacent. When, when you get comfortable, you get complacent. And so staying hungry is one way to avoid becoming comfortable. Um, and then that oftentimes put means, you know, putting yourself in a position where you're going to be taking a little risk or you might not always be truly, truly comfortable. But that's the only way I think you can move and, and, and grow. So, you know, staying humble, remaining humble um, like you did when you first started out and then staying hungry, which is what enough propelling you are, you know, to, to where most entrepreneurs end up uh, ending that. That's so. Yeah, same thing, humble and staying hungry. It's funny because those two things are like you're you're hungry to get to that certain point, but then you get older, you know, yep. you get a wife and like now you you have a, a family and yeah. you know, you start to think like, oh man, if it doesn't work out, what am I going to do? And that's that's almost the exact opposite thing 
of the way you need to think in order to have some of those successes if entrepreneurship is the road you want to go down. I um I wonder from a hard skill standpoint, um, you run well over a dozen businesses. I don't you know I don't want to put all your business in the streets, but you run well over a dozen bus- different businesses. And um and my question is from a hard skill standpoint, um, we've talked before about kind of how you manage um to keep it all in line, and you've gone from a place yeah. of having struggling with that a bit to now where you've sort of got a pretty good system going. Can you talk about a little bit like how you've, you know, you've struggled to keep because you're running all these businesses too. How do you keep them all going yeah. and how, how you struggle with that moving to what did you put in place in order to keep those things straight for those other people out there who think like, man, I don't know if I could manage all that kind of stuff like Russ can. You know, I, I tell people if, if you're looking to be successful in any endeavor, especially as it relates to a new business, side hustle, being an entrepreneur, you have got, got, got to be really, really good um, at time management. And it sounds like one of those things that people will say, well, you know, time management, it's cliche or it was the buzzword of the 1980s. You know, no, that's that. It's not a buzzword, and it's not something that's cliche. It's absolutely fundamental to the success that I've seen in my businesses, because unless you can appropriate the, you know, to the the, the correct amount of time or the appropriate amount of time to focus on a business, whether it's thirty minutes a day for one business, an hour for another, you need to be able to set aside that time and then stick with it. You know, I, I think uh, a lot of times people say, well, you know, what, what, what's the definition of success? And, you know, you, you hear those oft-used terms of, you know, when preparation meets opportunity, which is true in part. Um, but preparation and opportunity are, you know, I see as only being one half of that equation. You know, the, the other half is being able to execute. And part of executing is time management, um, being able to say, hey, I'm going to prioritize the list of things that I've got to get done across my entire enterprise of companies. What are the things that are most important? Okay. And what are the due dates that I've got to get those things done by? If you can get that down, that eliminates 50% of the headaches that most entrepreneurs run into. And, and I can tell you a lot of those things come from either not following up to things that they know they need to do or they just forget to do. Um, but more importantly, things that they could be available, you know, could be available to them, you know, uh, particular grants, loans, um, application opportunities for different contract awards. If you don't set those things as priority and then execute in a in a timely fashion, um, you you'll be surprised at how many you know opportunities entrepreneurs end up losing out on just because of time management. Um, so that's probably one of those hard skills that I'd say is overwhelmingly uh, one of the, the the most critical to being successful. So what does that look like for you? Like, how do you, how are you able, what do you do sure. to manage your time and your priorities effectively? Yeah, yeah. So so I have a Google Doc, and it's really, really nothing mind-bending, but I basically have a Google Doc, uh, you know, the Google Excel sheet out there on, on the cloud. And what I do is I have a running list of my to-dos. And what, what I do is, you know, in column A, it's, it's the, you know, the, the topic of whatever it is that I need to accomplish. Column B is, okay, where are we at in accomplishing this? Have you sent an email? Are you waiting for an email or response? Column C is the date upon which I either took care of column B or I'm waiting on something. Um, and I just go through that list every evening. And then what I do is that list has probably got, honestly, it's probably got 80 different things on it. And I know it sounds overwhelming, but, but that's the beauty of this. You can control that 
um, if you've got it written down and it's just not sitting on the back of your brain and you're right. forgetting about it or, you know, things like that. So what I do is every evening I look at that list um, for the things that I know are kind of really high priority um, and I color code them. Uh, and then from there, I build a calendar for what I plan on accomplishing in the morning. So last night, you know, one of the things that I needed to accomplish this morning was filling out a personal financial statement for review by Selig, who happens to be the developer that owns one of the locations that I want to execute an LOI on. That's something that I knew, you know, today or later on this afternoon's a deadline. So I've been working on it this morning. Um, but that was something that I had made the decision on prioritizing last night. So if, if there's anything that I could say in terms of how I do it is create a list of everything you've got going on, TQ, um, and then prioritize those things within that list uh, and then review it every night and then pick the top 10, the top 15. Um, oftentimes what I see, at least one of the things I struggled with early on, but I see in entrepreneurs today is that, you know, if they've got a list of 77 items, they're going to try to get 66 knocked out the next day. Right. And that's just impossible. <laughs> you know. So what you do is, you prioritize those things into four big buckets. You know, the, the short-term things you got to get done, the me, the middle or near-term things that you can kind of wait on, but still are important. And then the things that are really way out there, you know, three months plus, six months plus, things like that. Um, and then you color code them. And as you knock them out, you remove them from the list. Uh, so I, that, that's how I manage it. I, I review that list every evening. I set a goal of 10 to 15 the next morning. And then I work on those 10 to 15 Sometimes I'm able to get to them all. Sometimes I'm not. But if I don't, then it just goes back to being the top of the priority list for the next day. Right. And, and that's how I manage it. I think one other uh, thing I thought about while you're talking is you seem to have a large number of opportunities that, quote unquote, come your way. Um, and, and that's something that people in, whether it's investment banking or as entrepreneurs, call deal flow. So you seem to have a lot of deals that make their way in front of you um how do you how do you make that happen or how do you maintain a network where you have access to those opportunities um that you can pick and choose from to take take advantage of yeah 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 it, so so you know one of those other skills on top of management and you know uh, to, to, to honestly to be successful as an entrepreneur is you got to network you, you got to talk to the folks who are doing the things that you want to do and then figure out what they did to get there. Um, they may not be participating in that exact space at the moment, but you know, having those contacts to be able to say, Hey, listen, this is a deal that's in my wheelhouse, or maybe this is a deal that's not in my wheelhouse, but either way, I'm going to share it with TQ. And that comes from just networking, getting out there, pressing the flesh, talking to folks, letting folks know that you're interested. I'm not saying you got to show up to every conference in the three-piece seat and hand out a ton of uh, business cards. But in the beginning, I did that. I did that as it related to real estate. I do that as it related to capital sourcing. Um, I do that as it related to defense contracting. So, so just to be I really specific, space. you're saying you would go to, like, say, a conference, a real estate conference, multiple ones of them, meet lots of people, talk to sure. them and tell them what you're doing? Yep, absolutely. And, and, and the reason being is because if I want to be successful in real estate and this is my first foray or venture into this space or this endeavor, you have to. There's, there's a whole brain trust of information sitting there with other folks that you don't know that could potentially help you, or there could be some synergies between both parties doing something together. But the only way you're going to find out about those is unless you talk to people. You, right. you have to go and talk to people. 
And um, when and you do that initially, so whenever you do that initially, after you talk to people, how do you maintain those contacts? Because I know for me, sometimes that's yep. the struggle. Like, oh, man, I, there's something I want to do here, but I haven't talked to that person in six months or even a year. How do I sort of rekindle that relationship? Or for you, how do you maintain it over time so that it stays fresh when the opportunity does come? Yeah, so I, I think one of the easiest ways to do that is if you yourself stay in the space that you're, you're interested in. And then I'll give you an example. Um, you know, if, if my passion or focus or the endeavor that I'm really pursuing to build wealth is going to be in real estate, you, the, the individual themselves has to stay on top of what's going on in the space, whether it's interest rates, whether it's uh, price points have exceeded uh, a comfortable yield point for caps as it relates to the Atlanta market, whatever that topic is or those topics are, you got to be involved yourself because when you do go out and have a conversation with someone, it becomes much easier to sit down and kind of quickly cut through all that stuff because you both are in the know of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So for me, staying on top of relevant topics and the endeavors that you want to be successful in is, is, is penultimate. You you can't, there is no primal thing more important than that. So staying on top of relevant topics and I think that, by and large, forces you to have conversations with people because no man is an island, right? No woman is an island. So if you're out here by yourself and you're staying on top of topics relevant in, in, in real estate, for instance, you're not just going to you know, stay on top of that topic and not have a conversation with anyone because you're, you're, you're in that space. You want to grow. You want to learn. So by doing so, those things kind of naturally lend themselves to you fostering relationships and having conversations with people who can eventually pass on deals to you. So that's how I do it is by staying on top of relevant topics in the spaces that I'm I'm interested in. So for me, real estate, defense contracting, finance, franchises, those are all things that I'm always reading about. So it's very easy for me to say, Hey, you know, uh, Joe Cleveland, you know, I'd love to talk to you more about, you know, how we figure out the, you know, how, how do we figure out a way to reduce spoilage rates as it relates to our fresh produce right. in our stores, you know, but, but you got to stay in that space. Yeah. Um, and, and by doing so, I think it forces you to, to continue to have relationships that will eventually birth some type of deals that, uh, that come down the pipe, whether they can do it or not. Got it. So you could even call them for the sake of talking about something recent you may have read in a periodical or journal. Yep. Uh, yep. to kind of keep that yep. co- that conversation and relationship fresh. Yep, absolutely. Question, another question would be, how do you, another thing that comes across with you, and I had the same thing with Ed, and I had the same thing with Bryce, and a number of other folks, how do you maintain um, the confidence? Because you seem really confident about whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so, so you know, I, Maintaining confidence, and and I I would have to say that this is a this is kind of a recent thing for me. Maintaining confidence is one thing. Gaining confidence is is, is a lot harder mm-hmm. um, because it, it's something that is really you know test by trial and fire. Um, and if you've had enough success underneath your belt, you begin to develop that almost organically. You know your confidence. Um, maintaining it is something that I'm I'm just getting to myself. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that works out. But if, if I can speak to the first part, uh, I, I think that comes from, uh, you know, knowing the topic, um, executing in the space, and then gathering a few wins. Um, yeah. You know, have I been successful in every endeavor? No, absolutely not. But 
I've always looked at everyone, even if I wasn't successful as a learning, uh, a learning experiment. And for the things that I was successful for, I considered those wins and I, that just helped kind of develop this, this, uh, the confidence that, you know, you, you, you mentioned. Um, so I never looked at my failures as really true failures. I always looked at them as learning experiences, um, which I think is really positive. And I looked at my successes as total slam dunks, wins. Um, and I think that's how that confidence comes about. You never yeah. look at any of your, your, you know, your failures and say, man, man, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Right. Um, what you do is you look at them and you go like, hmm, you know what? If I had to do something differently this time, I would do this. Or you know what? This is why this might not have taken off at the, you know, at the absorption rate that I thought it was going to take off or at the acceleration rate that I thought it was going to take off. But um, I think believing in yourself and then looking at your successes and failures like that helps build that organically, at least for me. Got it. So so to, to your point, it's not so much about maintaining the confidence, about gaining it in the first place. And you gained it by yeah. taking losses as learnings and wins as home runs and celebrating those. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, that's I mean, really it's, cool. Uh, it's, it, yeah. Think, think of it like uh, almost like positive reinforcement, you kind of being your own life coach. Um, so when you do fail at something, you can sit there and critically think through, okay, well, why wasn't this successful, Russ? You know, you started this liquor company. Um, it didn't, you know, maybe take off in the direction that you thought of. Why? Oh, that's because you weren't aware of, you know, that every liquor company has got to be registered in every single state. You know, it's not like you create a brand and you can immediately start selling it in all 50 states. You have to go register for every state. Right. And that, for me, was something where I said, wow, you know, substances that are controlled by the ATF of this particular nature are all subject to this, whether they be alcohol, firearms, tobacco, doesn't matter. Um, but that's good to know because if I ever start a gun business or a tobacco company, that's knowledge that I gained from having started that company in alcohol, which I still own. So it's, it's, I looked at that and said, Hey, you may not be as successful as, as I would like it to be, but you know what? There's some great lessons that have come out of this that I can apply and, you know, uh, to, towards the future, I'm in another endeavor. So. What is, a- after Spark, was there any one success story that you'd count as a home run that feels like they really helped? Because you, you just talked about a lesson you learned from the liquor company. What's a good success that you had that, um, that that's like that put a you know, notch in your belt or a feather in your cap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so immediately after uh, we sold the business, um, we then about four months later sold the real estate. Um, and the, the people will ask the question like, well, what do you mean? Well, when we owned Spark, we also owned the building we sat in, but it was owned by two different companies by the same set of owners. So we sold both entities to Booz Allen at two different points, excuse me, in the merger and acquisition cycle. Um, having done that, you know, I did a 1031 out of the deal and was able to, within the time frame of six months, a declaration within 45 days to declare the properties that I was interested in, close on a uh, 40 unit apartment complex in North Carolina. So it was a win for me in that case that not only was I able to successfully sell a real estate business to Booz Allen for almost $7 million, but then transition out my equity once debt was repaid into a 1031 and then successfully placed that into a viable real estate project generating about $300,000 a year right now. Wow. So that would be a success. <laughs> that's a, yeah. That's yeah. a big win. That's a big win right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I could, I could tell you, hey, man, you know, executing three franchises and executing two leases would be great. But until I've got those stores up and running and I'm achieving 
you know, the AUVs we mentioned earlier in the phone call, uh, th- those aren't successes. So I'm, 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 I'm still baking. I'm still working in the kitchen on those ingredients to make those, uh, that, that endeavor a success. But, uh, if there was one definitive one that, that I could definitely put underneath my belt, it'd be the successful 1031. You want to give a broad brush stroke of the types of businesses that you're involved in now? So you don't have to go sure, one sure, by sure. one, but just kind of a broad, what industries, what kind of stuff are you in? Yeah. So, so overarching, I would say uh, financial services slash real estate is probably the overarching um, focus for my enterprise. Uh, we've got taxing corporations. Um, I've got real estate, uh, real, you know, real estate rental corporations. I've got a commercial uh, business at this point uh, in real estate. It's old bank building that we bought. Um, so we're still in the process of fixing that up. So that's a new endeavor. Um, I've got a strategic investment portfolio, which focuses on, you know, distressed assets, uh, kind of like the portfolio play that we're doing in Puerto Rico. Um, so, you know, that overarching umbrella in terms of real estate is, is one major part of the enterprise. Uh, the, the rest of it obviously focuses on franchises, um, I've got uh, two technology companies um, focusing both on the social media live stream space as well as the real estate space for tech. And, and, and then just a kind of a smattering of a uh, few other enterprises like Property Plaques. I've got the liquor company. Um, so just kind of a, a, a holding company at this point that holds a number of different uh, entities. But if I had to deduce it down to several categories, it'd be real estate, it'd be finance, um, it would be franchises in the restaurant, fast casual restaurant space, and then tech. Those would probably be the four areas of the enterprise. So um, only because I'm super curious, man, the live streaming company, I remember yeah. when that started, you were at South by Southwest a few years back. Um, and yep. and then there was like Meerkat and all the other ones that came along and seemingly, yeah. seemingly disappeared. Are you guys still operating and, and doing your thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's really interesting because you know, you know, I, I having talked to Eric about it, uh, who is obviously the primary owner of that entity. Um, at the time, it, the timing was just right. You know, we had no idea, and the business had no idea that at South by Southwest there were there was going to be Meerkat, there was going to be, um, gosh, what was the other one? I can't remember. Yeah, one but that's I on think Twitter. Twitter. I know you're talking about Periscope. Yeah. Periscope. Yeah. Yeah. Periscope. Yep. So we had no idea that, you know, Twitter was going to take down Periscope for a hundred million dollars, literally the same month as South by Southwest. And then, um, obviously Meerkat showed up. So we just happened to be there at the same time thinking that we were obviously going to be unveiling new tech, but it just happened to be that you had three companies there that were all entering the space at the same exact point. Um, you know, for those companies, uh, Periscope is still around Meerkat. They pivoted out, um, cause their revenue model really wouldn't work. Uh, for us, we still have the business. You can go to Android or uh, iTunes, Google it. It's stream, S-T-R-A, excuse me, S-T-R-E dot A-M. Um, you can find the app. It's a free, completely free for social media use and users. Um, download it. You can check it out um, and see. But no, it's an active business. Um, our focus is that, you know, we made it a loss leader um, from the, you know, in tech speak, we made it a loss leader on the social media front, meaning that we gave away the technology for free for individual users. But what we were doing and is or, and still are doing is developing basically a compelling business model for B2B sales. 
So what we've done is we said, hey, we're giving it away to, as a loss leader to individuals who want to use it for social media purposes. But then we can take the data that we're getting on the things that they're streaming, the, the types of individuals that are streaming at the time that are streaming based off use cases, and then sell that data not only to businesses, but also it helps us market it in terms of B2B sales. So. Right. Got it. You always, yeah. I always got something cooking, man. I see you. <laughs> trying to, man. Your household, your, the way your mom and dad raised you, produced, uh, you, you turned you into an extraordinary entrepreneur. Just out of curiosity, what's your brother doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my brother, uh, it, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, Clarence, um, he, <clears throat> when he graduated high school, uh, you know, thought about going to the academy, thought about going to the West Point, you know, the, the very similar path. And halfway through, because he always knew he wanted to be an engineer. That was never a question. He always knew he wanted to be an engineer. And he's, and he's brilliant, way smarter than I am. Um, and decided literally probably about a month before he was getting ready to go down and do the, uh, the physical candidate entrance exam for West Point, decided he didn't want to do it. And so what he did instead was is he went to North Carolina A&T, uh, played golf there for a few years, uh, completed his mechanical engineering degree in, you know, undergrad, then did his master's degree, I think, in computational science and mathematics. Wow. And then began his PhD, yeah, in engineering mechanics. Jeez. So um, he's currently living in D.C., working for the United States Patent Trademark Officer as a patent examiner, wow. um, reviewing um, engineering patents. So Jeez. that's what he's doing now, much, much more brilliant than I am. Um, but yeah, he, he works at the USPTO, um, has begun investing in real estate, has been doing so for a few years now, and, and is actually relocating to Atlanta. He just bought a house here probably about and, and probably about a month or so, but he bought a house here probably about a few weeks ago. And so his plan is to come down here and, and really get plugged in into some of the businesses that we have um, or that I've got down here that I would love to be able to pull him into. And, you know, again, when all tides are rising, all ships rise with tides. So it's one of those things where we're going to definitely get him plugged in and kind of supercharge his entrepreneurial endeavors uh, once he gets to the city. Because there's power and proximity. There right. truly is power and proximity. And, you know, if if you got a brother down here who's like, man, I'd, I'd, I'd bring you in and help you out, which is a story you often don't hear in the black community. Um, you know, but most of us would take it. But because you don't hear it that often, it's something that, you know, most people don't even realize occurs. Um, but it's something that happens in honestly white America every day. It happens in Asian, Asian families all the time. Uh, but so it's, it's something that, you, you know, we as a family decided we would do, you know, whether he was successful, he'd help me or if I'm successful, we're going to try to get him plugged in. So that's, that's the plan. Um, he, he wants to be an entrepreneur. He wants to walk away from uh, civil service, the federal government. Um, we're just, we're, we're helping him kind of build, build his empire once he gets down here and, and hopefully he'll, he'll be, be successful at it. Very nice. Do you um, do anything yeah. to give back in terms of uh, community service or things like that? Sure, sure. Man. I'm, I'm a member on three different boards. Uh, the first board that I'm a part of is Congressman John Lewis's. He's our fifth district rep here in Georgia. Oh, yeah. But Congressman John Lewis, uh, being the rep here, has a service academy nomination. So I'm actually sitting on the board of the service academy nomination board. So every year, uh, a board of West Point Naval Academy and Air Force Academy grads convening to sit down and review the candidates for 5th District and then award nominations based off their application. Right. So I sit on that board. 
you know, I, Kareem Shaw, he's also on the board. Okay. And actually, there's, uh, Adam Cole. Yeah, there's three of us uh, from the Air Force Academy, all African-American. Uh, we're all on the board because you have a ton, a ton of qualified candidates in this district. The problem is, is lack of exposure. Right. If you're not finding out about a free scholarship to West Point or the Naval Academy or, or the Air Force, um, you know, by the time you're a senior in high school, it's too late. But hell, by the time you're a junior in high school, it's usually too late. Right. You know, so it, uh, it's it, that that's one of the boards that I'm most proud of, and, and I've been a part of now for over two years. Um, the other two boards that I belong to are part of the Amy Casey Foundation. Um, one is the Community Investment Fund, in which we seed community investments uh, around the 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 NPUV, which is the neighborhood planning unit I live in. Um, basically, community restoration, community beautification projects that uh, bring more inclusiveness for the neighborhood. So I'm a part of the Community Investment Fund Board uh, for NEKC, as well as the Racial Equity Board for NEKC. Um, it's one of their new endeavors. They started here in Atlanta, which is their test site. Um, but what we do as part of the, or, or as part of the Racial Equity Board is come up with ways to identify actionable, determinable goals and steps that can be accomplished in order to improve metrics within the African-American community, whether those are health metrics, whether those are wealth metrics, whether those are educational attainment opportunities, um, trying to improve and equilibrate um, some of the racial disparity that's happening here is the purpose of that board. So that board was started up about eight months ago, and I've I joined it since, uh, since, since its inception. So Very those nice. are the three boards that I am part of and uh, try, to, try, try to get back on. Who have been some important mentors for you? You know, I, I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm going to be honest. Uh, there's only one person I, I could truly say is a mentor, and, and that's my father. My father was my best friend. He taught me, you know, the importance of investing and saving and passed on just a, a wealth of, of life lessons. And so if there was anyone that i say that I've intimately had a relationship with like a mentor mentor relationship. It would be my father, uh, my best friend and, and, and truly my mentor. Um, but obviously he wasn't the only person that was impactful in my life. You know, there's great men such like yourself and, and others. Um, I always, you know, when people ask me, well, how do you play sort of categorize those individuals? I say, you know, being a mentor to me is a really personal thing. You've got to know each other extremely, extremely intimately. Right. Um, but if it's, if it's folks that, let's say, don't rise to the level of being your father, then, you know, what do you call them? I call them coaches. Um, I have had a number of coaches and a number of different capacities. Um, And so when when people ask me, okay, well, how many mentors have you had? And I say, well, there's only one. But that doesn't take anything away from all the number of outstanding coaches I've had throughout life who's guided, steered, pushed me towards, nudged me um, in the right direction. And um, so I've, I've had a ton of coaches, but only one mentor. Very nice. Um, if you were to recommend three books for people to read, um, I know you do a lot of reading in the financial uh, industry and, and just in general, keep up with what you know. But in terms of books, what would three books be that you recommend? Sure. Uh, the, the first, and, and I think I recommended this to, to, to a group of, of folks that you were in attendance with a few years back. But the first book, if you're interested in learning more about real estate, the number one book on how to do it. And it's no get rich quick scheme. It's no, uh, you know, kind of soft skills, soft points made. It's hard facts with hard numbers and hard dollars. The best book out there is written by, or was written by a gentleman by the name of William Nickerson. 
Uh, it, the first edition came out in the 60s, and I think the last edition came out in the mid-80s. Uh, but the name of the book is How I Turned $1,000 uh, into $5 million on the weekends or in my spare time with real estate. Um, it's probably one of the most understated books, but it is by far the most impactful book on real estate that I've ever read. And I've read lots um, because it, it systematically tells you how to make money in real estate using rentals. Um, it tells you, hey, you need to save up 20% for a deposit. Okay. And the ways you need to go do that is maybe you shouldn't have that. You know, Starbucks, you know, we wouldn't really Starbucks in the 1980s. It was more like Dunkin' Donuts. But, you know, the guy tells you, hey, there is no such thing as getting rich quick. It just isn't going to happen. And this guy says this back in the 80s. Right. He's yeah. like, all the rest of these guys out here, the wolf system and all that, don't believe it. You want to get rich, it takes hard work and it takes time. Mm. And the guy breaks it down. Save 20%. Make these types of improvements when you find these types of properties. Um, it gives a systematic method and a formula upon which to evaluate whether or not you need to purchase a deal because it can deduce the amount of yield that you would create to service your debt. And and I had never seen that come out of a Robert Kiyosaki book, you know, right. saying, hey, look at the purchase price, knock off the last last two zeros. If you can't rent that house for whatever the, that remaining number is a month, you don't achieve a 12% yield. Hmm. And it was so simple. It, it literally was so simple. So if there's one book in real estate I had to recommend, it'd be William Nickerson's uh, how I turned a thousand dollars into five million in my spare time on the weekends or something or in real estate. Uh, the second book would be Benjamin Graham's uh, intelligent investors. This is by far one of the best books on stock picking and stock investments. Um, it, it's, it's a passion of mine, uh, the securities market, the bond market, um, you know, stocks in general. Uh, it was the book that my father was reading, uh, when I was growing up and it's the book he recommended to me read, uh, when, when I, when I got old enough to really understand it, so if, if there was a book that I said was equivalent to William Nickerson's book on real estate, but for the stock market and stock picking, it would be, uh, you know, honestly, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. So if you, if you see that book and you're interested in stocks and you really want to learn how Warren Buffett does it or how very successful stock pickers do it, The Intelligent Investor is the way to do it. Um, and then the third book would be by Peter Bernstein. Um, that book, uh, the, the title of the book is called Against the Gods. Um, it's the story of risk. And I know it's kind of a different book because, you know, it, it doesn't really talk about definable metrics or points in terms of be, you know, being successful in investments, whether they be real estate or stocks, but it just talks about risk in a more nuanced sense and gives historical examples of it. But, you know, a lot of times when, when I look at uh, investments and people ask, you know, hey, you know, I don't know why this didn't work or I don't know why this wasn't successful. And you just have to look no further than the appropriation and the placement of value of risk that they placed on the deal. You know, so when people can't accurately appropriate the right amount of risk, you'll find deals blow up all the time. Right. So I think from a nuance standpoint, yeah, if you if you really want to know more about risk, whether it's systematic or systemic, um, whether it's isolated or it's generalized. Um, having this book called Against the Gods, The Story of Risk by Peter Bernstein is, is an excellent book, which will complement whether you get a book on stock picking or a book on investing in real estate. Very nice. Uh, what do you do for fun, buddy? Uh, yeah, man. Yeah. So so some of my passions uh, are, are working out, even though I don't really do it uh, very consistently, but I'm trying. That, uh, that was the goal in 2018. So working out, obviously, cooking more. 
Um, so, so, you know, owning, owning franchises in the fast casual food space. Um, I never, never really was big into cooking. You know, it was just like, Hey, let's run and get some Wendy's. I'll be good. But I've started to actively care more about my diet. Uh, so cooking has become a, a, a new passion of mine. Um, reading, obviously you mentioned that earlier, reading a lot. Um, I probably spend, I'm going to be honest. I probably spend two and a half to three hours a day reading. Yeah. I know. Sounds crazy. No, it doesn't. I know one of the things you, you, one of the things you didn't mention that uh, I know about you personally is you grew up not watching a lot of TV, so that's just not a habit that you yeah. have as well. So, yeah, yeah, you know, my my father, uh, it, you know, my father never really watched sports. Um, the only sport he ever watched on TV was golf, and he would always be like, you know, watching as a child. He used to tell me this all the time. My brother and I, he'd be like, "You're too young to be watching TV on sports. This is the game of old men." He was like, you're still young enough to play these things, so get outside. <laughs> and so growing up, I never, <laughs> this is a true story. Growing up, I never really sat in the house and watched sports. And then my mother put the kibosh on just watching TV and period. I mean, we couldn't watch TV more than an hour a day growing up. And that lasted through high school. Wow. It got so bad, man, so bad. But yeah, it got to the point where there was nothing on TV after Martin, the show went off. Right. Like by the time I was in high school, I just didn't watch TV anymore. You know, uh, I work and I, I played sports. Yeah. So, so reading though, but you fill that time with reading. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, reading today, thank you. You know, re- reading today is, is important. Um, I, I I'm going to be honest and, and I don't want to sound crass about it, but I think, uh, I don't think enough people today in this day and age spend time reading and reflecting and thinking. But, um, yeah, reading uh, for me is is it's life, you know. And, and I tell people that all the time. And, and you hear all the the you know the the, the, the excuse me the allegories and the different uh, analogies of you know they they put information in books and people who don't read never know. Um, and it's true. It's it's true. I I can't uh, I can't you know articulate how important it is to read um, and and do it every day. You know, um, it doesn't have to be a book about finance. It doesn't have to be a book about self-help. It could be a book about fantasy, right. but you've got to give your mind that opportunity. Yeah. You got to give your mind that opportunity to just break free, um, and learn something. Uh, and even if it's not learning something, enjoying something different. And so I, I probably spend, um, reading two to three hours a day, things that I enjoy. And a lot of people are like, well, how do you do that with the kid and all these businesses? And it's really quite simple. I make it a priority. The number one priority on my list, and it's above even working out, is reading. It's reading. Because me at this point in my life, I don't plan on going back to school. But reading every day is equivalent in my life in terms of learning and growing. Now, since I'm not doing it in the classroom anymore and I don't have a professor to turn a paper into, reading every day for me has become my way of continuing my education. And so that's how important it is. Very nice. Very, very nice, man. Where can people find you online if you want them to find you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I really don't have an online presence um, that, that's been done purposefully. Uh, and the reason being, it's not that I'm escaping the law or, or trying to avoid blind life. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> it's, it, it's just that, you know, at this point in my life, I've got a really young kept child and I'm, I'm very, very judicious and cautious in terms of what she's being exposed to, her images, images of her parents. And so I and Kristen, um, we both 
graduated, you know, graduates of law school lawyers. We, um, we, you know, decided very early on that, Hey, we don't want our child, uh, growing up in 10, 15, 20 years and being exposed to something negative that mom and dad did on a drunk night 20 years before. Um, because that, that, you know, I know people like to think that, Hey, you know, releasing a sex tape is completely normal. It's not, it's not normal. Um, you know, finding pictures of your parents, butt naked or your mom doing something online that she shouldn't have been doing. It's not normal. Uh, At least I don't want that to become normal uh, in my household. And so for us, uh, we made the conscious decision that we would eliminate all of our profiles online, not only due to a lot of the service in terms that a lot of social media companies have with posting content and them and their ownership of that, but more important, but more so that, Hey, we just don't want to put anything embarrassing out there um, that our child has got to deal with face, you know, stare down or, or face in 20, 30, 40 years. I want to give her and hopefully any other child that I have every benefit that was accrued to me when I went out here and started starting my businesses. Cause people go, people will Google you all the time. But when people Google us, they're not going to see an image of my father, you know, acting at my pool in 1988. Right, right. And, uh, and if I have it my way in 20, you know, 38, when my daughter's old enough to really understand what's happening in the world, she's not going to see an image of her father being the right fool either. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the logic behind why you probably won't find a huge social media presence. But sure. if there's anyone out there that's interested in getting in contact with me, I don't mind providing my email address or phone number. Um, I love talking to folks because, I again, I always look at it, and this is part of what being humble means to me is anytime anybody wants to talk and pick your brain, it's an opportunity for you to do the same. And I do it all the time. People think, you know, Hey, and I'm talking, I just had this great conversation with Russ and that's actually not the case. A lot of times I'm picking other people's brains, constantly picking other people's brains because I always think there's something to learn, whether about them individually or about life in general. Very nice. Well, will if, if they write in just, if you want to reach Russ, just comment, on this post on my website and, um, and and we'll connect you to him so you can pick his brain and he could pick yours um, but it's been a great conversation Russ I've enjoyed it today man my guest today has been Russell McCray Russ thanks for being on the show absolutely thank you so much TQ and to all the listeners this is a phenomenal show had uh, an opportunity to listen to some of the earlier episodes if this is your first time tuning in this is the pitch for you TQ um, I recommend you listen to some of those older episodes uh, because they're pretty, pretty eye opening and inspiring so that's all we got but thank you TQ thank you Russ If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play.